0: It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses.
1: Element. Element. Element
2: FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show Larry Savage. He's a professor in the Department of Labour Studies at Brock University. His research is broadly concerned with union strategy and he teaches courses on labour unions, collective bargaining and labour policies. And we are talking to him today about an article he authored in The Conversation entitled Canadian Election 2021. Do strategic voting campaigns actually work? So it's a pleasure to have Larry here on the show. Larry, welcome.
0: Thanks for having me.
2: Yeah, so, um, you know, reading over your article, I thought it was really interesting. I thought maybe the best way for us to start this conversation is maybe to describe w- what strategic voting is, first of all, um, then maybe describe the, the strategic voting campaigns because they seem like two different things, and then uh, maybe starting to understand the confusion around those things because that's really what you you started to get into was uh, the individual person looking at how and what they're being told and uh, with these campaigns that they are being sometimes instructed to to do from perhaps their collecting collective bargaining unit or whatever it might be I thought it might help to to get some of that uh, understood clearly so that we know what we're talking about as we get into this if that's okay
0: Sure. So let's start with a simple definition. Mm -hmm. Strategic voting occurs when you cast a ballot, not for your preferred candidate, but rather for the candidate you think is best positioned to defeat the candidate you prefer the least. Yes. So, for example, you might consider yourself more closely aligned to the NDP personally, but you're told that that party doesn't really have a chance in your riding, so, you vote strategically for the liberal candidate because you think they're best positioned to defeat the conservative mm. candidate who you really don't like. Right. That would be an example of anti conservative strategic voting, which right. is likely the most popular form of strategic voting we've seen in Canada. Mm. And it's also the form of strategic voting where we see the most organizational resources poured into by labor unions and other progressive community organizations, whose strategy is really an anybody but conservative strategy.
2: Hmm. Now, splitting a vote is is similar to this in some ways, isn't it?
0: Yes. Well, vote splitting happens uh, when you have two parties who might splinter uh, the anti-conservative vote in a way that would let the conservative come up The middle. Yeah. Um, And, you know, the vote splitting, of course, is something that happens in multi party systems like Mm. we have Mm -hmm. in Canada.
2: Yeah. Right. Okay. Thank you for that definition. Um, I think uh, now campaigns.
0: Yeah. So the campaigns, there are often organized campaigns that strategic voting advocates will put together where they will pick. Uh, maybe a dozen or two dozen ridings where they think uh, the election is really going to be determined and where they think that if a group of voters sort of came together behind a single alternative to the Conservatives, that they might have a big impact on the outcome. So, for example, in previous Elections. A union like the Canadian Auto Workers Union, that is the biggest proponent of strategic voting, they've picked out, you know, 40 ridings where they consider uh, strategic voting to be an important tactic to determine the outcome of the election. But the evidence from those campaigns suggest that the strategic voting effort was not very successful, and in some cases was altogether counterproductive hmm. in that it facilitated the election of conservatives rather than block them.
2: Right. Which is interesting. And and that's, I guess where understanding some of the confusion at the, at the, uh, the single level uh, of what people are being instructed to do and how they're interpreting the information they're getting as to what they're supposed to be doing. Right.
0: That's right. There are lots of complicating factors that, um, that expose the gap between the theory of strategic voting and the actual practice. Mm. So for example, in some writings, anti-conservative organizations sometimes can agree on who the strategic vote right. should go to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in those cases, you might have a liberal and an NDP candidate both self-proclaiming themselves as the strategic choice or alternative conservatives. And that just tends to confuse voters. it's also true that a lot of people just think strategic voting means vote liberal. Mm. And that's because the media usually reports on national polls. Mm. We're rarely ever treated with riding level polling data. And as a result, people make incorrect assumptions all the time about their state of their local Mm. races based on national polling data. So for example, if you were new to a riding like Hamilton center, you might look at the national polls and think voting liberals is the best way to stop the conservatives. Of course, you'd be very wrong because Mm. Hamilton Center has been an NDP stronghold for some time. Mm. But the point here is that effective strategic voting requires a very high level of voter education, coordination and awareness that simply doesn't exist in Canada.
2: I'm really glad you mentioned that because that's exactly what I thought as I was reading through your article. I went, this sounds like it really does need a lot of education if you're going to be up on top of this and and be able to use these these, these strategic practices uh, to your advantage.
0: That's right. I mean, here's the thing. Strategic voting may mean very different things to different people. Some people might think I'm going to vote strategically against the liberals to deny them a majority. Mm. Or you might have people on the right of the political spectrum, people who may be uh, wanting to vote for the People's Party saying, well, you know what, I might hold my nose and vote for O'Toole if I think he can beat Trudeau. Or you might have a Green Party supporter deciding they're going to vote NDP because they don't think their candidate stands a chance. Mm. It's not just uh, a matter of people consolidating around anti-conservative voters, even though unions and other progressive organizations have really pushed that specific frame of strategic voting. Mm. So the bottom line is that because everybody has these very different ideas of what it means, the organized efforts to do it in a specific kind of way are really undermined. And the bottom line is that the success of organized strategic voting campaigns, as a result, has become very overstated. And in some cases, people are actually helping to splinter the anti-conservative vote even more.
2: Yeah, I'd like to get into some of those examples you give. But before we do, as you were talking there, I was thinking about how, you know, when people start to look at how to strategize around where to put their vote, as we're talking about here, strategically voting and through campaigns. um, The other thing that came to mind was that we see the benefits of, say, a minority government. Um, because they have to work better together with the other parties in order to get things accomplished. And it seems like it, over history, there's been a lot of success with minority governments that have been good for the country in terms of bringing in certain policies. And, and uh, you know, I think healthcare care was one of those and NDP uh, brought that in, you know, so... so even though they're not elected, they they carry weight and they get a lot of things accomplished and brought through, which seems to benefit the country on the whole. So I wonder about how people think about, you know, what should I do with this vote of mine?
0: This is a very interesting discussion because the value of majority versus minority governments is kind of a separate issue altogether, but mm. it's integrated in the sense that People are making strategic decisions based on their preferred outcomes. This also just leads to an undermining of the strategy of strategic voting altogether. Because, as you know, David, some people want minority governments, but there's a heck of a lot of people who would prefer majority governments. And so it's a bit of a mugs game to be sitting there at the ballot box thinking, well, I'm going to vote for this candidate because I think this might help achieve a minority. Or conversely, that it might help achieve a majority if you vote for a different candidate. Again, unless everyone's on board with the same general strategy, you really have everyone trying to out strategize everyone else, and it's a big mess at the end of the day. Mm.
2: The idea about the education around this and what is needed in order to peop- for people to really take advantage and understand how to strategically vote if they want to, uh, as you say, there's, we don't have that in Canada. Uh, why do you think there hasn't been more emphasis on, on that idea of understanding your vote and understanding uh, strategic voting and, and getting more educated on the whole uh, about the system?
0: I think, you know, I think there are several things happening here. The first is that some people have no interest Mm. in strategic voting. They just want to vote their values. They want to vote for the candidate they think best represents their interests. Mm. They're not concerned about trying to game the system. There are another group of voters who are thinking about how their vote might play into the campaign more generally but the folks who are pushing promoting strategic voting the most tend to be people with strong partisan interests themselves mm. and so you know on twitter you'll see a lot of liberals browbeating new democrats telling them that they need to vote strategically in order to stop Aaron O'Toole mm. and the response of a lot of the ndp supporters is to, to the liberals is to say hey you guys are pretending like this is a one-way street. Are mm. you also going to lend your vote to the NDP in ridings where that makes sense? Right. <laughs> so when you have these partisan interests clashing, sort of trying to carry the mantle of strategic voting, it really undermines the strategy's uh, credibility in the minds of individual voters who might, at the end of the day, think, you know, what? I don't know who to trust or who to believe, so I'm just going to go and vote for who I was intending to vote for all along.
2: Yeah, yeah, very interesting. Um, and it very, it is very interesting, isn't it, to discuss all of this and understand it because it, it's quite fascinating uh, to get into the the heart of these matters. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay, so you know, you mentioned gaming the system, and I just thought, yeah, there we go again. It's it's everything's a game. It, it, you know, when we when we get down to it, to some level about how we are looking at this, it's a bit of a gamble. But it, it's always very interesting to see the results, of course. And I, I, I guess the other thing is, is it. it you mentioned this idea of looking at at local and we always get the national picture and we see what's going on and why do you think we don't see more emphasis on that local idea of of being able to uh uh, uh focus voters in their area where that's where their vote is going to count and and either elect a candidate they want or not it's it's not you know about the uh, leader
0: right well this is where local campaigns can make a difference with volunteers door knocking Mm. uh, people calling and making their particular pitches but what we know in from the data is that the vast majority of voters do not vote based on their local candidates Mm. they vote based on party affiliation most people don't even know anything about the local candidates Beyond parties, they're more interested than in who the leader of the party is. And then really their last consideration is according to election study after election study is the local candidate. And that's why even though we say all politics is local when it comes to federal elections, that's certainly not the case.
2: That's a little sad.
0: Maybe, but uh, that doesn't change the fact
2: that it's true. (laughs) True enough, I know. Um, And yet, you know, uh, once the election is completed, uh, then it is that local candidate that if you have issues or whatever, you're going to be dealing with.
0: That's right. Although we do have a, a parliamentary system where parties are very strong and where most individual MPs will always vote along party lines. So in a way, it makes sense That voters are choosing based on party affiliation and not the local candidates.
2: Right, right. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. My name is David Moses, I'm your host, and this is Moment of Truth. My guest here on the show is Larry Savage. He is a professor in the Department of Labor Studies at Brock University, and his research is broadly concerned with union strategy. He teaches courses on labor unions, collective bargaining, and labor politics, and we're talking to him about an article he authored in The Conversation, which is called Canadian Election 2021, Do Strategic Voting Campaigns Actually Work? Great. We have been talking about that and getting some explanation around uh, strategic voting, what it actually means to the individual. Now, we talked about some of the confusion and you, and, and some of those things that can happen within strategic voting and how that can backfire. Um, can we get into more of the details of some of those examples that you've mentioned in your article around exactly that kind of thing?
0: Sure. I mean, one of the examples from... The 2011 election, which was an election in which the Canadian Auto Workers Union had spent a great deal of resources on a targeted strategic voting campaign, they actually targeted seven ridings where their preferred strategic candidate actually finished third. Mm. And so that undermined the entire logic of what they were trying to do in terms of stopping conservatives from being elected. And of course, in that election, the conservatives went from a minority to a majority. In one of those ridings, just west of Toronto, the union backed a liberal incumbent over an NDP candidate named Jigmeet Singh, who at that time was running in his first campaign ever, and of course not as NDP leader. Mm. And the union backed the Liberal because they thought this Singh didn't have a shot and they were encouraging people to vote strategically to stop a conservative. On election day, though, Jagmeet Singh lost by just a few hundred votes to the conservative in that riding. And the liberal candidate who was supposedly the best strategic option based on national polling data and then the past performance in the riding, he finished in third place. In other words, the union had clearly backed the wrong candidate for their purposes. And in the process, they helped to hand the seat over to the conservatives Strategic voting backfired entirely in that case.
2: It almost sounds, to some degree, like uh, the local uh, the local voters uh, were sort of educated in what they were doing there in terms of at least who they were who they were specifically looking to want to, to vote into that riding anyway.
0: Well, this is one of the things that strategic voting can't afford. Defo- account for. Mm. They can't account for new popular local candidates Mm. because strategic voting is always based on looking back at the previous election results. So if there's a new popular local candidate, you can't account for how much personal popularity they may have. Mm. Strategic voting campaigns also do a pretty poor job at dealing with surges in party support mid-campaign. And so you might, for example, endorse a half dozen candidates at the start of the campaign because they're best positioned to defeat a conservative at that point. But halfway through the campaign, that party could collapse, another party can surge, This is precisely what happened in the 2015 election when a strategic voting organization called Lead Now endorsed a handful of anti-conservative candidates in British Columbia, and in three of those ridings, they backed NDP candidates who ended up finishing third because Lead Now did not properly account for the surge that Justin Trudeau's liberals experienced in the second half of that campaign. Mm. And in two of those three ridings, the conservatives managed to just hold on by a sliver because ironically lead now had helped to splinter the anti-conservative vote. So this is another dynamic that we might see in this election. You know, we know the liberals are down a bit. The NDP is up. If Jagmeet Singh has an amazing debate performance, for example, in Mm. a few days, uh, you know, we may see that party surge in the polls. And then all these people who are telling us that strategic voting means voting liberal in certain ridings, they may actually be undermining the effort. You really need to be making a last minute decision based on good local data. And that data is very hard to come by.
2: I'm glad you said what you just said there about uh, last minute or, you know, when to vote is what I was thinking about as I was also reading through this article. When is the best time to strategically vote? um, If that's what you want to do, is it better to vote sooner or hold off and vote later once you see how things are going?
0: That's right. If if you are bound and determined to vote strategically, you should be voting at the last possible moment. You should not be voting in the advanced polls because so much can change between when you cast your ballot and when they're counted on election day.
2: Mm. Um, Your example there about Lead Now and also, I guess, about the CAW and and some of the things that went wrong in some of their uh, strategic voting campaigns. Um, Again, it was really interesting how you said you, you can't, they can't really, account for new candidates and their popularity or or those kind of things and um and also i guess it also brings to mind about doing your homework um before you you start to i guess tell people what you're going to do and it really comes back to that point about education again doesn't it
0: it sure does but i think we got to be frank The political establishment in Canada sort of lives in this bubble where they think everyone is closely tracking what's happening in Parliament, Mm. what's happening in the party platforms, what's happening in the polls. The reality is that the vast majority of Canadians are barely paying attention to these kinds of details. They just get the headlines if we're lucky.
2: Right. And
0: so the expectation that people would be dissecting this information very carefully, that they would be maybe even pooling their resources to have local constituency based polls, that's just not going to happen between now and September 20th. And so, you know, what I argue in that piece is that. At the end of the day, voters really shouldn't be seduced or scared into voting strategically because given what we know historically about the ineffectiveness of organized strategic voting campaigns, it means you might as well just vote for the candidate you actually believe in. Because if you try to game the system, it's unlikely to produce the outcome you're looking for.
2: (laughs) It really does sound like that. It sounds like keeping it simple is the best idea. (laughs) Exactly. Um, Yeah, they're gaming the system again, doing your homework, though, if you're going to look into this. Uh, As we look forward, uh, I'm just wondering what kind of thoughts you have about uh, what you're seeing through this election. And have you been hearing much about strategic voting this time around?
0: What strikes me about this election is that calls for strategic voting have popped up much earlier than they would in a normal election campaign. Mm. In a typical election campaign, maybe it's the last week Mm. where you really start to hear strong calls and arm twisting for strategic voting. I think it's happened much earlier in this campaign because the Liberals have faltered so badly in the polls right out of the gate. So there may be, I think, you know, in calling the election, there was a calculation that they would be able to turn their minority into a majority that the conservatives were low in the polls, mm. that the Green Party was imploding, that this was a, a sort of a great time mm. to test the electorate. I think there's a little buyer's remorse on behalf of more than a few liberal candidates that <laughs> that the government sort of triggered this election. And that's why you're seeing these calls for strategic voting going out early, because the liberal poll numbers are dropping.
2: Yeah. Yeah, there seems to be that uh, before the election was actually called, uh, my gut feeling was telling me this doesn't feel like the right time to call an election. Uh, how was your what was your gut telling you about this anything?
0: I think that the government was being strategic to capitalize on a moment where they thought they could turn the majority the minority rather into a majority. But, you know, given that We are now, it looks like, in the fourth wave of a pandemic. Mm. Um, I think a lot of voters have, uh, they resent the government for having called the election Mm -hmm. and are maybe punishing them in these early polls. Of course, the campaign still has a long ways to go. We still haven't seen the leaders debate. And so anything can change. But I think uh, the public is very annoyed that there is an election going on right now.
2: Mm. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I did see a story exactly, I guess, to some degree about what you were talking about in, in terms of that early strate- strategy kind of thing that's going on. The story was saying that, um, you know, even though the liberals are low, uh, there was a poll taken. Maybe you're familiar with this and that it said that. Most, the most likely effect of what's going to happen is if it comes down to a head-to-head between the Conservatives and the Liberals, uh, people that are sort of on the fence or uh, not sure what to do would probably throw their vote behind the Liberals, uh, and that's what they said they would do if it came down to that that kind of a of a battle
0: i i actually haven't seen that um data although it's quite consistent with what we've heard um from pollsters in the past Mm. that there are a lot of people who park their votes until towards the end of the election campaign and then they put their vote to work in a way that they think would be most effective Of course, being one of the leading contending parties always puts you in a better position to call on voters uh, to do that. The worst case scenario for the liberals, of course, is that they continue to slide in the polls and then they lose the argument that they are the most electorally viable alternative to Mm. the conservatives.
2: Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, well, it will be very interesting. A- any final comments uh, as we head into this, uh, just be- as we finish up?
0: Well, I just think the, the bottom line of my research on these strategic voting campaigns is that the success of strategic voting as an organized effort is really overstated. There's lots of evidence to demonstrate that in Canadian electoral history. And in some cases, you might actually be helping to splinter the anti-conservative vote. So voters really have to be careful if they want to exercise that option.
2: Is there, As you say splinter the vote, I'm just wondering, is there any information on the kind of numbers that we actually see uh, throughout an election where, you know, in terms of percentages that... that- people actually uh, that we know those those votes are splintered in that way?
0: Well, we know in the last federal election campaign, according to public opinion polling, that about a third of voters indicated that they were open to voting strategically. Mm. Now that doesn't mean that they all carried through and voted strategically. And it also doesn't mean that they voted strategically against the conservatives. You know, there are all sorts of different strategic Options that somebody could uh, could exercise, right. but um, but it's it's complicated, and we don't really know the answer because um, <laughs> because one of the flaws in the polling data, of course, is that we're having to believe that what people say they do is what they actually did. (laughs) And one of the flaws of Canadian election studies, of course, is one of (laughs) the first questions that gets asked after every election is, did you vote? And the overwhelming majority of people indicate yes. When we know that voter turnout is not as high as people claim it is. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's a little disconnect there between reality (laughs) and uh, what people tell pollsters.
2: Oh, boy. Interesting stuff, for sure. Absolutely. Uh, Larry, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the show. Maybe we can talk after the election, uh, you know, and and see how things went and, and, uh, you know, compare notes.
0: That would be great. Thanks, David. All right. You take care. All right. Bye-bye.
2: That's Larry Savage. He's a professor in the Department of Labor Studies at Brock University. He authored a uh, an article in The Conversation entitled Canadian Election 2021, Do Strategic Voting Campaigns Actually Work? And he is a professor in the Department of Labor Studies at Brock University. His research is broadly concerned with union strategy. He teaches courses on labor unions, collective bargaining, and labor politics. That's this part of the show. Thank you for listening. Stay with us. We'll be right back after this with more right here on Moment of Truth. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses.
1: Element. Element. Element FM.
2: Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That, of course, is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and on the iHeartRadio app. If you download the app, you can listen to us anywhere you go. Don't forget, we also post all of our conversations and interviews on our SoundCloud. They, of course, are then uh, posted to uh, other podcast platforms as well, so you can always uh, catch it uh, after the fact if you've missed it. I'd like to welcome uh, two people to the show today to uh, talk about an article they co-authored in The Conversation. It is called... Is the election really key to Canada's post pandemic future? Hmm. Well, I have with me the co authors of that article, Richard Nimogene and David Carment and uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit about both of them So, starting with Richard Nimogene he's an instructor in the School of Indigenous and Canadian Studies at Carleton University he joined the School of Indigenous and uh, Canadian Studies in 2001 and in uh, his research and tech areas in Canadian Studies Canadian Politics Public Policy National Identity Branding Canada Canada US Relations and Canada and Global Issues and uh, so it's a pleasure to have him here along with, as I mentioned, David Carment. He's a professor in international affairs at Carleton University. He also is the editor of the Canadian Foreign Policy Journal and a fellow of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. So, gentlemen, it is a pleasure to have you both here. Welcome.
3: Thank you, David. Thank
2: you. Uh, Richard, I find it really interesting that you uh, you also are part of the indigenous uh, element uh, and studied in that area. That's something, you know, going into this election, I thought that indigenous the the, the situation around indigenous people and uh, and reconciliation would be an issue, but I haven't really heard much about that. And you guys do uh, do point that out in your article somewhat, but um, not really from the leaders through the election.
1: Yeah, I, I think you're quite right, David. Um, certainly, if you go back a few years, nation-to-nation um, nation relations uh, and reconciliation were top of mind for Canadians, uh, people wanting action, uh, as well as uh, related Uh, policy issues like pipelines Mm -hmm. uh, versus the environment and climate change. And uh, it contributed to a very intense uh, campaign in 2019. And uh, uh, like a lot of uh, issues, uh, the pandemic kind of took over. Mm -hmm. But I think, uh, you know, and, and Trudeau has argued that we need to have uh, a new vision for Canada post-pandemic, but I think part of our argument, and David can elaborate, is is that uh, a lot of these issues uh, still need to be dealt with, and uh, you know the pandemic obviously is is seriously important, but that doesn't mean that the other uh, challenges that Canada faces. Uh, have have disappeared. Yeah. And, and so we see on the one hand, uh, the parties and the leaders not really talking about these issues, uh, but writers,
2: uh, First Nations, uh, activists, academics are trying to raise it. Yeah. And especially just prior to the election, we think about what happened with uh, the discovery of all these unmarked graves. Uh, that was a huge issue. And I thought for sure that uh, that would be something that uh, w- would have been uh, in the momentum to move that forward into this into this election. Um, However, uh, I also want to mention, uh, David, I'm going to throw it to you if you want to add something to that. But before you do, um, you know, it, it really is, uh, it, it, you know, kind of ties in with the book that you guys have co-authored as well, Political Turmoil in a Tumultuous World. Uh, the two of you have uh, have worked on that. So if people want to, to also find out more about uh, the kind of things that you guys are talking about and looking into, people can uh, certainly go and look up your book, Political Political Turmoil in a Tumultuous World world. So, uh, David, anything to add on to what Richard was saying?
3: Well, in fact, thank you very much for uh, bringing up the the title of the book. It wasn't our first choice. It was, in fact, uh, to be called Divided in a Dangerous World. The whole premise for writing the book was that Canada, prior to the pandemic, was a deeply divided country Uh, at Mm. so many uh, different levels. Provincially, there were disparities between Quebec and Alberta on energy, but probably the most significant was the, uh, the plight of the indigenous people in Canada, specifically the, we seem to have sort of forgotten how deeply troubled the country was and how divided it was over how to essentially manage a problem that seems to be kicked down the road by various governments, an issue that seems to, uh, Defy uh, both public public debate and also public solutions, and in particular the, the you, you know the the, uh, the closure of railway lines and so on. Mm-hmm. And, uh mm-hmm. asking for government pleading with the, the government NCP to intervene. Uh, and do something which was, would probably be close to breaking a the law. There was a considerable amount of debate about that. Mm. And we really were a country on the brink of mm. of deep division that would have seen us uh, probably torn from left uh, to right, uh, east to west, north to south, and so on. And somehow um, the government has managed to shift the debate to an issue that obviously is very important. But these things, in our view, in the premise behind the book and uh, ultimately, the, the article that was derived from it is really to highlight the fact that uh, these are issues that are not going to go away. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are, are uh, as I've noted, and, and Richard, I think, would agree with me, part of uh, Canada's struggle to identify itself. Uh, the brand that governments develop for themselves is really um, something intended to market uh, or differentiate themselves from other parties, but they really don't go to the heart of public policy issues. Uh, Whether it is uh, safe drinking water, access to, you know, arable land, uh, environmental degradation, all these things hinge on Canada's future, but seem to be uh, ignored uh, or uh, set set to the sidelines by by the government so what they do is they deal in trivialities to to a large extent and focus on small differences that uh, highlight uh, to the to the Canadian public uh, how different they are um, amongst each other but you know much of this is sort of artificial debate about the differences between healthcare for example between the conservatives and and the liberals when we really should be tackling core issues that are dividing this country uh, and making less, us less of a nation in terms of how we engage the people of Canada. So we did try to tackle this, this, uh, this issue in, in the volume. And, um, and uh, the point that we made was simply that uh, we've Canada faces a number of challenges. And we've been, in some ways... Um, struck by two significant problems, not the least of which was a a difficult partner to the south of us, Donald Trump. Mm. Uh, And the the premise was that once he was removed from power and there was a a great sigh of relief when he was, that things would go our way. Uh, But it doesn't appear to be the case. So um, it isn't simply indigenous issues that are are, uh, being postponed, but also our relationship with the U.S., and also, more broadly, just Canada's place in the world. Um, there's a, been a number of calls for a deep foreign policy review, but Richard and I go even further and suggest we need to rethink uh, the way Canada uh, structures its economy, uh, the relationship between uh, provinces and so on, a McDonald commission for the 21st century.
2: Mm. You know, as you were talking there and bringing up a lot of these things, um going back to the title, uh, you know, is the election really key to Canada's post-pandemic future? The federal government and Trudeau talking about you know, who who is going to have the best uh, post-pandemic uh, solution. I don't know about you guys, but for me, I, I still feel like we're in the middle of this. It's still evolving. I, I'm not ready to look at the end because we're not there yet. We keep having these variants that come up and keep throwing these things at us to, to keep us in this sort of unknown state as we we're rolling through this.
1: Yeah. And I mean, that's a, a good point. And, you know, if you recall, uh, Trudeau uh, mused at one point that this was the most important election, yeah. I think since world war two or, mm. or something mm. like that. And, <laughs> Okay, uh, we've we've seen uh, all of a sudden a major rethinking about the role of government in the economy, right? Even, the you know, the Conservatives are promising to outspend the Liberals even on, you know, if, if the mass of the Toronto Star is, is correct. Um, and this after, you know, four decades of neoliberalism and, and scaling back the mm-hmm. role of mm-hmm. government. Yet... Despite this claim that we need to, Canadians need to decide what their path forward is, there's, of course, remarkably little discussion Mm -hmm. uh, about what that should be. You know, Kim Campbell infamously said that. Uh, you know, what was her line? Uh, an election campaign is no time to talk about policy. Well, <laughs> you know, and, and she yeah. got massively defeated. Uh, Trudeau suggested that we needed to have this debate. Yet, you know, What are we talking about? We're talking about guns. We're talking about abortion, mm. uh, you know, the usual wedge issues. And we're not, as, as David pointed out, talking about the big issues that we need to, to talk about. I mean, mean, it's, you you know, uh, the big issues about what is uh, our relationship to be with the United States? Mm. How do we deal with China? Mm -hmm. The pandemic, as as you noted, raises a lot of questions for us, but those are not. Uh, issues in a vacuum, they're very much connected to, you know, uh, if we need to rethink supply chains, uh, if we need to rethink manufacturing of, of critical pharmaceuticals, uh, this is connected to big, big issues. Yet, I understand that the uh, the English... Uh, leader uh, English debate of the leaders won't even talk about foreign policy directly so so we're not talking about the big uh, questions that we think uh, we need to discuss
3: hmm. I, I'm going to add, add to that um, uh, two points one is that uh, this is a government that uh, has chosen not to run on its record so it's like it did in, in the past election and not it, as it did in 2015, it's decided to tell Canadians that this is the government for the future, uh, but not necessarily the serve them well in the past. Unlike in 2015, when, when we saw a Liberal Party sneak in um, for a whole bunch of reasons, but premised largely on, on the belief amongst many Canadians that it, we would be reintroduced to the world, that Canada would find its place once again, and Canada would have a voice and we would strengthen the rule of law, international institutions and so on. Uh, this did not come to pass. And as a result, um, what loomed large was the gap between the liberal rhetoric and, and the reality of what they had actually accomplished. The Liberals chose not to run on that record. And they're doing so again. So they're telling us this is about the future rather than what we have, what we have done. And by and large, the media has bought into that premise. But I will say what they do desperately need, uh, which is not talked about, is they need a mandate to endorse their what will be a significant uh, change in the way in which this government finances uh, uh, infrastructure, uh, strengthens health care across. Mm-hmm. Across Canada, and in other words, we're going to be seeing a lot of spending. Mm. And given that uh, Christian Freeland as finance finance minister, introduced what what was essentially a fairly uh, minimalist budget uh, just what six months ago, with where the details were sadly lacking. And even before then, they didn't have much to go on. Uh, they need a public mandate to support what will essentially be a very much. Uh, I think, increased level of taxation for Canadians and also a lot of spending. Uh, and they cannot venture forth without having that sort of guiding hand behind them. I think that's what this is really about. It, is, it isn't just about the big picture stuff, but it's also saying, going back to Canadians, say, look, yeah, you voted for us. Um, and if assuming they, they win, they may not, it may be a minority uh, one way or the other. Uh, but a here we now can go ahead with what we told you we would um, I think that's partly what this is about. Um, but sadly, as Richard has pointed out, foreign policy does not loom large in this, in this, uh, in this election as it historically has, except as I noted in 2015. Um, and that goes to the, I think, very clever marketing on the part of this, this government, which has chosen not to run on its record. I mean, it's a pretty um, a shaky record, if you will, in terms of foreign policy accomplishments. And they've just gone through a a list of foreign ministers who have probably, you know, uh, and some accomplished one or two major things. And the rest has been sort of window dressing.
2: Mm. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And this is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses, and I am speaking with the co-authors of a, an article in The Conversation. It is entitled, Is the Election Really Key to Canada's Post-Pandemic Future? The co-authors are Richard Nimogene and David Carment. And uh, they have also uh, co-authored a book that you can go and check out. It is called Political Turmoil in a Tumultuous World. It, it really felt to me like this was an odd time for the government to call an election I, I still feel that it it felt to me like they it was there's to lose. That's how it felt mm-hmm. because they were already in power. They already they, they had a minority, but they were functioning and things were going on, and we're still in this very, very strange, as you say, tumultuous kind of situation. So uh, I, I thought I just don't get it, and I still don't get it. I, I'm wondering where this is going, and and after all is said and done, what is really going to be changed out of all of this? Covid seems to have, may have made us forget. Uh, a lot of things. As you pointed out earlier about the pre-pandemic Canada and uh, how uh, we were already in that considerable state of uh, uh, disunity and turmoil, but the pandemic has amplified the tensions that that were produced there. We talked about Indigenous uh, reconciliation. You, you guys bring up the SNC-Lavalin and, you know, the climate crisis. Um The racialized and social economic inequities, Black Lives Matter, you know, uh, all this stuff is important. It's all there. You guys also uh, talked about the renegotiated NAFTA. Yes, that was something. Well,
1: I think David, you you know, uh, previously uh, raised an important point, which is that the political gambit of, of the liberals was about looking forward and you know and usually when governments go early uh, let's not forget the the government pulled the plug on itself it wasn't defeated yeah, yeah uh it felt that it was in a good position to do to do that right but in fact all these issues that you that you just listed david um matter to people and and so uh you know, uh, prior to the election call in Canada, uh, things were going, uh, you know, obviously not uh, overly smoothly, but compared to some countries, uh, you know, the vaccination rate was going up. Mm. The economy seemed to have a bit of a bounce back. Mm-hmm. Um, the financial support by the government was reassuring people. Um, and and, and so clearly, the government thought that we can, like Horgan and BC and uh, Higgs and uh, New Brunswick, capitalize on this environment uh, to secure a majority. And uh, you know, we had the warning sign in Nova Scotia, where a, a, a government with a, a huge lead in the polls suddenly got. Uh, uh, defeated and 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 to me you know it's because these other issues that you raise when people are forced to think about well who do i want to govern Mm. you still evaluate based on what have you done Mm. not uh not what do you say you need to do Mm. especially when you have an an opposition that is uh you know going along with a lot of what You're you're proposing. Mm. And so that's why, you know, we have this sudden drop in the polls that people start saying, what about reconciliation or, you know, Mm -hmm. why does economic insecurity come up? Well, people are still uncertain. Uh, Some people are having trouble getting jobs. Other people Mm -hmm. are questioning, are they going to uh, keep working in their Mm -hmm. fields they've chosen? Yeah. Businesses are having trouble hiring people. Yep. Um, people are saving because they're not—you know—people aren't going out as much, and now we have a, a concern about inflation. So all the economic angst is coming back on top of, you know, a, a summer that was. Uh, in terms of the climate, uh, not yeah. very good in yeah. North America or Europe and, and other parts of the world. And so all of this uh, comes back. Um, the fact that Trudeau comes out and says, well, we are the fifth longest minority government and they usually don't last this long is a bit disingenuous in that uh, they were not defeated and they were mm-hmm. getting most of what they wanted mm-hmm. through. Yeah. And in fact, uh, a couple of bills didn't get passed because the government pulled the plug so uh, so there it, it was a political gamble that uh, uh, has hurt them in the polls, and now we're seeing them not talk about their vision but going back to classic wedge politics. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So I have a question for you guys. Uh, and it seems like a really odd one to me. And I don't know why this entered my head. But I was thinking about this, about the election and why the Liberal government would want to have this election at this point in time. Like I said, for me, it just felt like it wasn't the right time. And I couldn't understand why, because of the things you just mentioned, uh, and and how things are rolling along that that they would want to have an election at this time. And, and I thought, they want to lose the election? <laughs> Is there a reason, you know, because of looking to the future, the the, the craziness that we find ourselves in, that an, that, an, that a, a, a party would ever want to li- deliberately lose an election so they wouldn't have to deal with the future? Has there ever anything ever been happened like that in the past?
3: Wow. Um, I, I would maybe twist that around and sure. Richard could probably comment. I, I would say that they probably wouldn't be too dissatisfied with another minority government. Right. But uh, what we've seen with this minority government is a question of who holds the balance of the power. Quite frankly, it's hard. It's hard to tell whether or not uh, the NDP has had much of an impact um. on significant policy choice. Um, the question of whether or not—I mean—you you're, you're, raise a kind of an interesting point, right? and what it what it. Indirectly, what it tells me is that they would be satisfied if if we accept your premise uh, with a government that, um, as we have argued in our paper, maybe this is what you're, you're driving at. It is different, difference only superficially from their own hmm. uh, po- platform and their own policy. In other words, they would be willing to put themselves at risk because they know in the hands of a conservative government, things wouldn't change all that right. much. Hmm. And I'm not going to call you cynical, David, but uh, <laughs> it is a reality that it, it is, in a sense, that they Canadians certainly probably are hard pressed to tell the difference. Mm. So maybe the the real question here is: Would do Canadians care if the Liberals lose because there's so much <laughs> at stake? I mean, and, and that that could be that could be the uh, the, the nut of it. I mean, the, ultimately. You know um, whether it's a conservative government in power, where you're going to find differences going to be on the margins. We've examined both platforms as well as the NDP's government's uh, potential government's platform, and uh, apart from some major issues on the NDP side, the Conservatives and Liberals are are not that significantly different. Mm-hmm. Yes, there are. But now we see them backtracking on gun uh, uh, yeah gun ownership right. and gun policy yeah. um, and in fact you know the conservatives are saying well if you look closely at the liberals gun policy it's not different than the conservatives right. and there's some truth to that so yeah. I, I would agree in a sense that um, Canadians certainly wouldn't be too upset if, if a conservative government got in power right. but I think what they uh, there's you can overthink um, think this and there, there may be a strategy to hold them in track either way and, and re- retain a kind of minority mm. government uh, status.
2: You know, from what you said about, uh, Richard, I'm going to come back to you in a second, but just about moving forward, if it does go back to a liberal minority, this seems to me that the question about having pulled this election and held this election at this time, going into the next election, is something that the, the electorate would perhaps hold against the liberals or certainly think about why did they do this to us at all previously? Uh,
1: That would contribute to the cynicism of the electorate Mm. and the, you know, disaffection towards politicians, Mm. right? Like Mm -hmm. things aren't going to change. And, you know, uh, it's putting us at risk and, and so forth. I, I was going to say that your your initial uh, question, David, could be a good plot for, you know, a Canadian sequel to the British uh, House of Cards right? <laughs> from the 90s. Right, right. It's, right. Uh, but, but, uh, but seriously, though, uh, I mean… Why would Trudeau call an election? As, as David pointed out, it's because they thought they could win. and, uh, and But it's also, you know, if they they were doing things, uh, they could go on for another couple of years. Yeah. But, so why go uh, apart from thinking you could win? It's that you think that bad things are going to be coming up soon. Right. Uh, and And, you know, so for instance, the David Peterson government you know, uh, lost an election, mm. uh, you know, to Bob Ray in 1990. Right. Yep. And uh, it called an election after three years. Yep. And everyone said, you know, why are you calling the election? And they never really had an answer. But the real answer was they knew the Crisis of deindustrialization for the Ontario economy was coming, right. and Bob Ray had to wear that. Right? Yes, yes. Remember Ray days and everything. Yeah. And I think in the same way, Canada. Uh, David pointed out to uh, questions of, of spending and taxation. Um, You know, many economists are not that concerned about it, but to be honest, a lot of the business class uh, is, a lot of financial journalists are the level of debt will become a political issue. And, you know, and and just as O'Toole is coming out and saying, well, the deficit will disappear. Uh, We're going to spend and, and and anything that's not going to be satisfactory to, to a lot of people. Mm. So, so I think that, uh, you you, you know, it was like, try to do this before conditions get really bad for us. Uh, And, 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 and so, uh, but again, uh, Frank Graves, the uh, the founder of ECO's Public Opinion, and who has a chapter in our book, has identified you know serious strains in the Canadian citizenry, and those are again coming out in in this election. We can mm. see it.
3: Mm. I'll just add. I might differ differ a little bit with uh, with Richard with respect to. Uh, our fate and future really hinges on the uh, direction the United States is headed. And I mean, their numbers are still good. They've dumped a lot of trillions of dollars into infrastructure spending and domestic spending, which will trickle down and affect us positively. So goes the U.S. Uh, That is the direction that Canada will follow as it always has been. Um, And I think uh, if we're going to see our ways, I'm not necessarily uh, optimistic about the U.S. future, But I think if there's going to be an upside to this, it will be largely determined by forces that are beyond the uh, liberal government or mm. conservative government's control. In mm. other words, international right. economic uh, security and stability. On the other hand, um, where we are seeing this negative impact, again, that is a, I think very much a, a reflection of what's happening south of us. The anger out there, I've not personally witnessed any of the, mm. any of the things that are happening against the leaders mm. of their respective parties, but it strikes me that, uh, there is. We are back, and we have the potential to be back where we began writing this uh, book. Mm. Uh, Country divided mm. in a in a difficult situation globally. Mm. Right.
2: They're the voices of Richard Nemegine. Uh, He is an instructor at the School of Indigenous and Canadian Studies at Carleton University, along with David Carment. And he also is a professor of international affairs at Carleton University. I've been talking to them about their article in the conversation entitled Is the Election Really Key to Canada's Post-Pandemic Future? You can read about it in the conversation. Thanks for listening to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. We'll see you again next time.